This is the SF Productions Podcast Network. How I Got My Wife to Read Comics Episode 592 Can a comic book collector of over 30 years get his wife to read them? Will she let him keep them? Learn more in this podcast. Let's go to the comic book lounge with Mindy and Mark. Fables makes a triumphant return, Bruce gets arrested, Naomi heads home, Sisters in the River, Lucy gets her family back, Hopscotching time with guilt, and two icons leave the stage. This is How I Got My Wife to Read Comics for Sunday, May 22nd, 2022. I'm Mark. And I'm Mindy. Just a reminder, you can go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get our feed, other SF podcasts and blogs, and subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher, and maybe give us a like on Facebook. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com, like us at facebook.com slash sfppn, follow us on Twitter at sfppn, check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork. Or call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. Fables number 151 from DC Black Label by Willingham, Buckingham, and Lelola. After a seven-year break, the team that brought us one of the gateway titles to get your wife to read comics returns as if no time has passed. A quick primer. Fairy tale and folklore characters actually exist, and they escape to our world after the adversary conquers their realms. They mostly live in a huge apartment complex in Manhattan called Fabletown, with magical wards and glamours used to cloak them. Those who are unable to blend in, talking animals, trolls, etc., live on a farm in upstate New York. In addition to the original series, which ran from 2002 to 2017, there were various spin-offs and miniseries. There was also an attempted Fables TV series back in the 2000s, which eventually became Once Upon a Time. As we return to the story, the apartment complex is in ruins after the events of the previous arc. Fables are now on the run or returning to their homelands. The cops are looking over the place. The magic is gone, so it's now visible to anyone. Old King Cole and Maddie, a shape-shifting, talking cat, are the only ones left, along with two burned bodies. Across the street, a mysterious man with a fairy says that Geppetto made this mess and that there must be a reckoning. Meanwhile, in a forest in the realms, a young woman meets a bear. They recognize each other, and she explains that she is now Jack in the Green, off to find the last story home. They exchange pleasantries, and she goes off. Back in Manhattan, one of the burned bodies is left off to the morgue for examination. In the world of the Hess, the Wolf family, Bigme, Snow White, and their cubs, have reached a place to build their new home. The kids are used to TV and are shocked to learn they won't see it again. Back to young Jack, who finds the home of the old Jack, which we assume is Jack of Fables. He's all the Jacks in fairy tales. She announces that she won the title of Jack fair and square, but he's not buying it. Back to the wolves, who find a raccoon interrogating them. You see, he's in charge here. Squire Polidorius Prestorglorius, chief magistrate of this district, but you can call me Squire Polly. Bigby explains that these lands are his home, and he plans to claim them again. Polly runs off annoyed. 
back to the morgue, where one of the horribly burned bodies wakes up. Oh, of course, I remember now. Totenkinder killed me. There's a bag next to her. Do we have any idea who she might be? Hmm, I don't know. Because remember, fables really can't die unless people forget their stories. And and I was thinking of people that we actually have seen as opposed to who we haven't. And I was thinking we might have to go back and look and see who Totenkinder killed in the... Right. Let's just hope Bill Willingham stays the course on this. It's marked as a 12-issue story. I wonder if it's one of those where he has them all, like, planned out and in the can, or if it's going to drag out for three years. Right. <laughs> Justice League versus the Legion of Superheroes, number three of six, by Bendis, Godlewski, and Cody. It's not at all clear how or if this fits in with the main continuity. Like many DC efforts, this has been delayed and drawn out while the main DCU story has sailed along and the League is dead. Anyway, Computo sends out an alert that a rip in the space-time continuum has popped open next to the LSHHQ and to take shelter. Meanwhile, the other end of the rip in 2022 is being watched by Gold Lantern, stuck in our time. It's all part of the Great Darkness. There's the usual Bendis dialogue with League and Legion members making suggestions and asking what to do. Brainy, usually the person to save the day, is at a loss. We may be looking at the end of all things! Batman asks Computo for info on time-based criminals, who replies with a question. Have you interacted with one lately? Yes, Epoch, who warned them that if they found a gold lantern, to destroy it. Before they get a chance to do anything about that, there's a burst of black light and the heroes are swept into the time stream. This is a version of the classic plot point in team-ups where subgroups are sent off so everybody gets a chance to shine. Batman and Chameleon Boy are left at Legion HQ only to find the science police attempting to arrest them for doing bad science. Chameleon Boy figures he can get them out of it as his mother is the president of the United Planets. Naomi, Brainiac 5, and Monel find themselves in the Great Disaster in Commandy's near future. Commandy finds them, and Monel is less than diplomatic. Brainy gets him to take them to Science, which is a probably abandoned Leviathan site. The three founders of the Legion, Saturn Girl, Lightning Lad, and Cosmic Boy, have gone to Neo-Gotham, home to Batman Beyond. Aquaman and Ultra Boy are in the desert in the time of dinosaurs. Ultra Boy, currently leader of the Legion, assumes Brainy will fix things, which seems to be awfully passive for a leader. And Gold Lantern finds himself in Metropolis of maybe 1938 based on the dirigible and the old biplane with the great darkness hanging overhead. Okay, Bendis, you've set up a lot of things. Now you've got three more issues to resolve them. Naomi, Season 2, Number 3 of 6 by Bendis, Walker, and Campbell. This relatively new Bendis character got a CW series, but we stopped watching that until this miniseries played through, since the continuities are different and it was too confusing to keep track of them both. It's now a moot point since the TV show was canceled. Naomi's mom is yelling at her husband after he lost Naomi, who went off to a battle. Hawk Girl shows up at their door. Hawk Lady? No. Looking to talk to Naomi after she messed up their previous conversation. Meanwhile, Naomi and Cyborg are trying to shut down an interdimensional portal with a tentacled monster coming out of it. 
When he asks her if she can handle this or needs to get out of there, she replies, Oh, I got it, blasting the monster. Cyborg shuts down the portal and checks her for injuries. She has them, but is quickly healing, which hurts a lot. Naomi is ready to go find Dee, the Thanagarian, who's about to murder someone to spare her from having to do it when Hawk Girl arrives. Both Cyborg and Hawk Girl tell her to go home, which she does. Cyborg accompanies her. Dad tells her she's not ready to be on her own yet, and she agrees, but she still wants to be a hero. So she goes back to high school despite the world knowing who she is. I don't see how that would possibly work. Mm-hmm. A boy who said some inappropriate things about her comes over to apologize. There's an explosion, and Naomi flies off. Take Spanish notes for me if I'm not back in time. It's D who crashed through a building and lies unconscious or dead? Rivers of London, Deadly Ever After Number 1 from Titan by Bromfin, Cartmel, and Baroy. This comes from a long series of novels and comics with the concept being sort of supernatural meets Law & Order UK. We begin in 1897 where a man and his daughter are selling paintings of tree nymphs. Ruffians tear up the paintings after he admits he's never actually seen a nymph. That night, he reads a fairy tale book to his child. He later finds himself in the middle of a glowing wood. Cut to current day, where adult sisters Chelsea and Olympia are doing a diving exercise, creating a magical bubble of air around their heads. Now, Chelsea and Olympia are actually rivers. Oh, okay. Um, and it's referred to in the title Rivers of London. Oh. They're the gods of their specific rivers. Oh, okay. See, Mark doesn't read the novels, no, so he doesn't no. know this. So one of them gets distracted by a hot guy, and there's a whole bit about vegan burgers. The sisters go off into the forest and run into a girl who's looking for non-vegan food she stashed. The sisters note that the foxes would eat the mulberries rather than her food and make a hidden tree appear. A mysterious figure in a cloak goes to the magic tree. The sisters later wake to screams. The hot guy is actually a werewolf and is attacking the grandmother of a girl with a red hood who happens to be holding that same fairy tale book. The sisters and the girl fight off the wolf, and we later see other campers getting their stories straight for the cops. One of the sisters happens to be the almost sister-in-law of Peter and Nightingale, London police who handle supernatural stuff and who are the main characters of this storyline. She calls them in, but they are being chased by an underground train full of glowing skeletons. This kind of reminded me of Doctor Who a little bit. The Sparrow and Nightingale episode where the doctor's not really in it. (laughs) Well, just as an aside, Mark, Ben Aronovich, who writes the novel series, I believe he wrote for Doctor Who. Oh, that wouldn't surprise me. I'm pretty sure of that. In quick succession, the fairy book flips to The Frog Prince, and then an actor in a TV show about royal rascals decides to become a frog. And Snow White, one of the girls working up an alibi, eats an apple and is poisoned. That's a good start, I think. Yes, it will be interesting to see where this goes. And as I mentioned, Ben Aronovich earlier, um, he did not write this one, which is, I think, maybe why we're not seeing as much of Peter and Nightingale in it. Black Hammer, Reborn, number 12, from Dark Horse by Lemire, Yarsky, Stewart, and Picos. The worlds are about to collide. Sherlock Frankenstein is at a loss, and Skulldigger is dying. A ship arrives, and out comes the Parliament of Weird, the Colonel Weirds from various Earths. Our Weird explains that they have to prepare for who is coming. Sherlock says that the evil Black Hammer is already gone, but Weird replies that it's the anti-god who's coming. An army must be collected from throughout the Paraverse, and Talkie Walkie has a map in his memory. 
Skulldigger is saved and becomes Space Digger. Back to the Hammers, with the Evil Dad wanting Lucy's hammer. They battle it out, and it appears that Evil wins with a depowered Lucy falling from the sky. Space Digger flies in and saves her. She wakes up in the spaceship. Seeing weird, she attacks him. He shows her that he didn't kill her family. He sent her to our world for safety. He explains that she will ask him to do this and gives her a choice. Stay with her family and never return or go on with the fight. She chooses to stay, asks him to put them there when the time comes, and he leaves. Back to the spaceship where Antigod has arrived. To be continued in Black Hammer, the end. This is being publicized as the final storyline in the universe. Guilt number two from Ahoy Comics by Quitney and Morissette. We're in 1973 where a de-aged Hildy and Trista find themselves after going through the time portal. It's only designed to send one person, the owner, so all bets are off. Hildy, who is about to be married, tries to explain what's going on to her friends, but they already know because she explained time travel to them a month ago. Actually, Hildy's not a time traveler, but a temporalist, one who travels back in their own lifetime, inhabiting their body of the time. Cut to 1995, where Hildy rents a room from a 98-year-old lady who hands off her witchery to Hildy when she dies. Cut to 1956, where a college-age Hildy is booted back to the present when she does something too out of character of her younger self, like getting involved in women's lib. Back to 1973, her friends just think she's nuts. Trista learns that Hildy has been coming back to this day all to avoid marrying a jerk who runs a cult. Of course, she keeps getting booted back to the present when she tries to change her past. But again, with two going through the portal, maybe she can do it this time? Trista's mom is involved in the cult, by the way. The groom happens to come by, noting that he's running a 48-hour seminar today. They can get married after that, or not, and they will still go to Paris regardless. Hildy decides to take the tickets and her friends to go to Paris instead. Of course, back then it was easy to change tickets, especially when one of her friends is a stewardess. Meanwhile, Trista has run into a boy. I think this is the son of the cult leader. Oh, okay. I, okay. I, I, it was very weird, but yeah. I think later on it indicates he's the son of the uh, cult he, leader. He literally just appears yes. in a panel. Like, where was he? Yeah. He plays along with the whole time travel, sorry, temporalist thing. He suggests she uses her future knowledge to make a fortune in inventing things, but she says she always comes up with ideas and doesn't follow through. Trista also tells a story about being a fake psychic, eventually getting into legal trouble for it. Her client happens to be the same old lady who Hildy befriended. During all this, Hildy and her friends go to the airport with the cult guy, Trista and her mom, and the boy in chase. A plane almost crashes, and the second car hits a lamppost. Back to 2017, Trista's boss is fending off a call from Hildy's nephew, who can't get anyone to answer at the apartment. Back to the plane, which landed in the water, apparently in 2017. Now, before we go, we wanted to mention the passing of two giants of the comic industry who died only a few days apart. Neil Adams got his start at Archie Comics, getting paid $32 for a page of artwork. He switched to commercial art for a time and drew the Ben Casey comic strip. Adams later got work at Warren Publishing, doing horror comics, which led to DC and their war and humor comics. He did a number of covers, including Dead Man Inspector, using photorealistic backgrounds, which were very avant-garde of the time. 
He also did some X-Men for Marvel before settling back at DC, becoming the Batman artist of the early 70s. He rehabilitated the then-campy character into the more dark and brooding character we know today. He co-created Man Bat with Frank Robbins, Ross Al Ghul with Denny O'Neill, and revived Two-Face and the Joker. Adams may be best remembered for his Green Lantern, Green Arrow run with O'Neill, the hard-driving heroes era. His last major DC work for decades was the Superman vs. Muhammad Ali oversized special. Adams started his own firm, Continuity Studios, which has been doing film storyboard, ad, computer graphics, and designs for over 50 years. There was some additional Marvel work in the 2000s, and he wrote and drew Batman Odyssey starting in 2010. Within the industry, Adams was beloved for his work on securing artists' rights. Artists' original artwork is returned to them today due to his efforts. He led the fight for Siegel and Schuster to get proper credit for creating Superman. George Perez got his start at Marvel, becoming a regular artist for titles such as Deadly Hands of Kung Fu. He co-created White Tiger, comics' first Puerto Rican superhero. Perez was all over Marvel in the 70s, doing team titles like Avengers, Inhumans, Fantastic Four. While still working at Marvel, he started at DC in 1980, with New Teen Titans giving a huge boost to his career. He was also working on JLA, as he was so skilled at working teams. By 1984, he began work on another project, along with now longtime partner Marv Wolfman, Crisis on Infinite Earths. By this point, he was considered to be DC's preeminent artist. 1987 brought the reboot of Wonder Woman, with Perez both plotting and penciling, he would later take over full scripting. Perez worked on the Superman titles, creating Luthor's battle suit as part of designs for Kenner's Superpowers action figures. He did runs on the Super titles throughout the 80s. After a poorly handled transition of the Wonder Woman title, Perez left DC, returning to Marvel for Infinity Gauntlet. In the 90s, Perez mostly stepped away from regular comic work, doing a few runs for both DC and Marvel here and there. He attempted to create his own publishing line, but bankruptcies ended that plan. By the 2000s, he was back at DC, Brave and the Bold, Infinite Crisis, Final Crisis, and a Superman run, which led to more concerns due to editorial oversight and the ever-changing status quo of the character. For example, were Clark's parents still alive or not? By 2019, he retired due to health concerns, including surgery that blinded him in one eye. In 2021, he announced he had inoperable cancer and chose not to have treatment. DC and Marvel after decades of argument, agreed to reprint his classic JLA Avengers crossover with proceeds going to the Hero Initiative, which Perez was co-chair. Announcer Bot, how can the folks find us online? Go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts, and blogs. Subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Like us at Facebook.com slash SFPPN. Follow us on Twitter at SFPPN. Check out Instagram at SFPodNetwork. Call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. Back to you, Mark. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.